not an aberration. Israel was created not as a democracy, but as a Jewish supremacist nation. There's a privileging of one ethno-religious uh, community over another. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. Today, we're delighted to be joined by author, professor, and organizer Nada Elia to talk about her brand new book, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, Feminism, Internationalism, and Palestine. In the book, Nada Elia unpacks Zionism from its hypermilitarism to incarceration, to its environmental devastation and gendered violence. She insists that Palestine's fate is linked through bonds of solidarity to other communities crossing racial and gender lines, weaving an intersectional feminist understanding of Israeli apartheid through her analysis. And she also looks deeper into the interconnectedness of Palestine with Black, migrant, and queer movements, and with other indigenous struggles against settler colonialism. Nada has been a contributor to the Electronic Intifada for many years and is a core member of the Palestinian Feminist Collective. She's also a professor at Western Washington University. Nada, thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Good to be in conversation again. Yes. Uh, let's start off um, by talking about your book, kind of situating it, it in the time that we're in right now. Um, you begin by looking at what many call the global intifada. Uh, you write about liberation struggles all over the world, resisting Western imperialism, settler colonialism, and capitalism who are coming together. Um, situate us in this context and how Palestine is at the forefront here. Okay, so yes, I do speak, in fact, for the longest time, the, my my title for my book was not greater than the sum of our parts, but notes from the global intifada. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you picked up on obviously what is at the very core of my book, a global intifada. And, uh, you know, if we look back just a couple of years ago, May 2021, the unity intifada, the unity intifada was like hailed around the world as, you know, like Palestinians coming together from the West Bank, Gaza, Al-Nakab, uh, 48 Palestine coming together despite the fragmentation. And that was a, a, a moment like that we really, really, really need because it was overcoming the fragmentation, the imposed fragmentation of the Palestinian people. Uh, and that unity intifada, for me, it was like also a very important moment in that while it brought Palestine together, the homeland, it still was not addressing diaspora Palestinians. So for me, the global intifada is the intifada of Palestinians everywhere. But as soon as you speak of Palestinians in the diaspora, Palestinians in the diaspora are very much part of the other struggles, right? So we are, you know, speaking of myself, I am an immigrant. I am a woman of color. I am criminalized. I'm racialized. I'm sexualized. And I think of myself as part of the very large community. I, I'm an abolitionist, and obviously the book is also abolitionist. And I think like, okay, when when someone, like if the police are coming, am I going to be assaulted or protected? Hmm. I'm in the community of the people who would be assaulted and threatened 
and endangered by the police. And that's a very large community. And we are coming together. For me, that's where the global intifada is. It's not the unity intifada within the homeland, which I absolutely like. I mean, all of us celebrated that, of course. But the fragmentation is beyond the homeland. The fragmentation is that is global. We are a diasporic people. At least 50% of the Palestinians are displaced Palestinians, are in the diaspora. And so I was looking at what that means, the global unity, if you want, and the global unity and intifada, because the, the those, as I said, marginalized, disenfranchised, dispossessed, colonized, unsettled, uh, criminalized, racialized, sexualized communities are coming together, you know, and and it's also like it's not a very like recently we've been appreciating and analyzing and uh, looking at these uh, coalitions that are coming together, but they're not necessarily coalitions that started in 2020. They also go back a long time. You know, Black Palestinian solidarity is not a recent phenomenon. It's back from the anti-colonial days, you know, in Africa and and the Black Panthers knowing what the African struggle for uh, for decolonization was and knowing that that struggle was very much in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. So we have that. We have, you know, a history of understanding amongst the indigenous people that was not maybe as articulated as it is now that this is settler colonialism. So that's what my uh, part of what my book is about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and of course you talk about how Zionism, Israel's political ideology, is a project modeled on the United States' history of expulsion, genocide, and replacement. Um, but yes. you also describe the quote uh, masculinist violence of Zionism and how ultimately this is also baked into into the pies of all settler colonial projects. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, settler colonialism is gendered. History is gendered, and for me, like, you know, the, what is now being denounced a lot is what's called the two-stage liberation theory, mm -hmm. that first we liberate the nation, then we liberate the nation's women. Like, excuse me, I mean, you know, how, and historically we know, we know this is just like, it doesn't make sense. You can't yeah. liberate the nation without liberation, liberating its women. There is no such thing as the two-stage liberation theory. If you start prioritizing liberation, then you're not liberating. If you want to truly liberate, then you liberate the most vulnerable communities, gender non-conforming, women, queer, and then you are truly liberating the nation. So by now, there's an understanding that the concept of the two-stage liberation is corrupt, is just like doesn't work, right? right? There's also an understanding that history is always gendered, that colonialism is always gendered, that violence is always gendered, especially militaristic violence. But even though the understanding is there, I found that the analysis wasn't. Hmm. And so for me, it's like, I mean, I'm I'm super grateful for the fact that writing about Palestine, discussing Palestine, covering Palestine has finally broken through the censorship. There are books about Palestine. There are books about, but even the books are fragmented. We have books about West Bank. We have 
writings about Gaza. We have writings more recently about 48 Palestine. So the writing is fragmented, but also the writing somehow follows this flawed logic of the two-stage liberation, where it's like, now we're going to talk about apartheid without discussing how apartheid is gendered. Now mm. we're going to talk about settler colonialism without discussing. It's like, but settler colonialism is always already gendered. You can't talk about it without looking at that. And and so what I did is I actually, like, I, I wove in. I didn't have to do anything. I just had to uncover it, you know? Like, women have been impacted by settler colonialism from day one. Yeah. Women have been impacted by militarism from day one. It's just a matter of actually putting it in print. And so uh, so my analysis actually looks like, of, I mean, as I said, the understanding was there, the analysis wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to look very much at what does it mean when we say militarism is masculinist? How does that translate on the ground into the experiences of women? And as I started looking at that, I mean, there's more than ample documentation. But again, it's like there was this, I mean, I, I think of, and that's probably why I ended up with greater than the sum of our parts rather than global intifada. It's like I was bringing together all these fragmented pieces of analysis. And, uh, and so, I, I brought in all of that that was present, you know, like we have records from from uh, the Halidi uh, books to the to the Benny Morris books about the fact that rape was a weapon of war. It was. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't, you know, and, and also some soldiers raped some women. It was like part and parcel of the conquest, the Zionist conquest. Well, why can't we then, as we write how the Nakba was taking place, also in, inscribe that experience? Yeah. So that's what I was trying to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really important. Um, can you give us a couple more examples of how apartheid uh, and settler colonialism um, continues to be gendered today? especially when we look at Palestine. Oh, just a couple of examples. I, I want to talk, for example, about, again, uh, one thing that we that the, the knowledge is there, the analysis is not, mm -hmm. and I write about it in my book, is, you know, we know about women giving birth at the checkpoints, right? Uh, that there's documented, United Nations has documented it, many Palestinian NGOs, many even Israeli journalists have documented it, women, Palestinian women give birth at the checkpoints. Because, but the analysis that I bring in is why is that and why is that a tool of, a part of settler colonialism, right? Settler colonialism wants to erase the Palestinian population. So I talk about how, for example, in 1967, meaning the when Israel occupied the West Bank, one of the first things that it did is it stopped issuing licenses for the daya, for the traditional midwives, right? For the Palestinian traditional midwives. It started, it stopped issuing licenses so that delivering at home became illegal, hmm. right? 
so you know i mean you know palestinian existence as far as israel is concerned is illegal but delivering i mean like the most feminine thing at all delivering at home with a midwife became illegal uh, so midwives were either practicing illegally with the risk of being arrested and jailed or and as they aged out new ones could not be licensed what what that led to is more women needing to deliver in the hospitals, right? So Israel stops issuing licenses for the daya, and therefore Palestinian women have to give birth in hospitals, but A, the infrastructure of the hospital was not in any way improved to accommodate women giving birth in hospitals, and B, the hospitals were only in urban areas, and women in villages had to plan on going to the hospitals, and between your village and the hospital is probably a dozen checkpoints, and that was intentional. Right. You know, I mean, we've got brains thinking about that, and they're like, okay, we're going to stop issuing the, the the licenses. Women have to deliver. At, I mean, you know, a, a pregnant woman that's visible, right? A, a woman who's nine months pregnant who's about to give birth, that's visible. When a soldier stops a woman from reaching the hospital, that's not an accident. Yeah. So that's one example of how settler colonialism, because of course we are the demographic threat, right? You know, I mean, again, the knowledge yeah. is there. What, what about the analysis? So we are the demographic threat. How do we stop the demographic threat? We make it illegal to give birth at home. And we make it difficult, sometimes literally, I mean, deathly, women and newborns have died at the checkpoints to deliver in the hospital. We don't upgrade the hospitals for that, and we make it difficult, dangerous, and sometimes fatal to get to the hospital. That's one example of how settler colonialism is gendered and impacts women. Yeah, yeah. We're speaking with Nada Elia. She is the author of Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, Feminism, Internationalism, and Palestine. Um, Nada, today we're seeing an acceleration in not only Israel's settler colonial violence uh, and, and its project in Palestine, but in the unmasking, really, of what Zionism is at its core. Uh, and so-called liberal Zionists in North America and in Europe are saying they're outraged at the new government, at, you know, they're they're really uh, terrified of figures like Itamar Ben-Gavir, as though he and other newly elected ministers are just aberrations, and Israel has some sort of moral center that it is losing. Um, and there are protests in Tel Aviv where thousands of Jewish Israelis are marching to demand that the Israeli high court, you know, remain independent, again, completely ignoring the fact that the entire state project is built on ethnic cleansing and, and apartheid. Can you talk about how you see the current situation right now in Palestine and, and what it says about really what Zionism is and what it's always been? I mean, I think what you've just said in your in your question and your statement to me is like summarizes what the current situation <laughs> is. It is not an aberration. Israel was created not as a democracy, but as a Jewish supremacist nation, yeah. privileging, I mean, in its very ideology, in its very vision, 
there's a privileging of one ethno-religious uh, community over another. And that in a country that was populated because of course, the whole myth of Palestine as a land without a people for a people without a land has been more than denounced and exposed. I mean, you know, <laughs> there wouldn't be 7 million Palestinians today if we didn't exist if you are uh, less than a hundred years ago, right? Uh, so Zionism was the creation of a state through the genocide of a people, of an indigenous people, and through the dispossession and disenfranchisement of the survivors. That was already the ideology, the idea. I mean, look at the very early Zionist writings and that was the ideology and the vision. It did not succeed in completely erasing every single Palestinian. Therefore, it has to continue doing what it's doing. And so what we are seeing today is the absolute total logical consequence. There is no, I mean, it's not, maybe it's just like maybe more obvious. I don't know that it's even more obvious. I mean, for me, it's not more obvious because the land dispossession has been going on. The violence, the the control of reproductive justice, as I, as I said, you know, in 1960, from 1948 to 1967, we had apartheid within Israel itself with Jewish citizens subjected to civil law and Palestinian citizens subjected to military law. So apartheid was there from the very beginning. The creation of Israel was accompanied by apartheid. The creation of Israel was accompanied by massacres by genocide literally look at the definition of genocide it was genocide you know i remember back in the days when i i once wrote a, a, an article where i used genocide and uh, and the editors wanted to change that to ethnic cleansing and we argued a great length about whether ethnic, ethnic cleansing qualifies as genocide and of course there is the fact that the UN requires that if there is an acknowledged case of genocide, then other countries have to come and stop it. But I mean, that's besides the point. The Israel was founded on genocide and apartheid from 1948, not from 2015 or 20 or whatever, you know, all the reports that we're now getting. Apartheid existed within Israel itself in 1948, right? So, and this possession is like, you know, Palestinians have been losing land since 1948. Massacres have happened since 1947. And they're still happening. So for anyone to think this is an aberration rather than simply a continuation, that person must have been intentionally, intentionally living under a rock, you know, yeah. because, I mean, and I know that within Israel, there are so many Israelis who don't know. I mean, that apartheid wall actually does block them, blocks out Palestine, blocks out what's going on there. But it's like, okay, so if you see a wall, do you not wonder why it's there? So while I do understand that, no, I not quite understand, but no, that Israelis are not necessarily aware or have not been necessarily aware for the past decades 
of what's going on, of what is being done in their name, I would say ignorance in their case is a choice, not an excuse. It's like how we go on with our lives is we ignore. And, and you know, but that I think maybe now the outrage of the Israelis is that they can't ignore what's going on anymore. Right. But it, it's yeah. not that it's happening now and it wasn't happening 10 years ago. It's just that it's a little hard to ignore now. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's disturbing their daily lives. Right. Um, you also talk about in your book, uh, hegemonic white feminism, you know, the feminist except for Palestine crowd um, and how it absolves and covers for Israel and its crimes. Can you expand on this and 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 talk about how anti-Zionism is, is a real feminist principle? Feminism is not only about, you know, caring about some women. I mean, obviously, feminism is a gendered-focused analytic left, uh, lens, but it is a lens that looks at justice. And so, you know, justice cannot be selective. Justice cannot be, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll care for justice. Um, it's like it's like progressive except for Palestine. I mean, yeah. you actually are not progressive if you are progressive except for Palestine. Just like, uh, you know, there's the pep and the poop. You're also not progressive if you're progressive only for Palestine. <laughs> You know, I mean, like, <laughs> progressive only on Palestine. Yeah. I used to call it pep and pop, but apparently the more common expression is pep and poop, progressive only That's on great. Palestine. Anyway, great. so, uh, I mean, you're you're not. You're. I mean, there are people whose cause is only Palestine, and in my mind, those are not progressive. They're nationalist, and, and, and nationalism is not my idea of progressive. But, you know, just as you can't be progressive only for Palestine, I mean, progressive except for Palestine, because progressive means anti-colonial, anti-racist, uh, anti-militarist, anti-supremacist. Well, isn't feminism also supposed to be all of that with a more focused gendered analysis? So how can you claim to be feminist and support a state that is militaristic, that is a settler colonial state that has engaged and continues to engage in genocide, in ethnic cleansing, in massacres, in the name of the state, right? How can you? I mean, where, what kind of, what kind of apartheid walls are you building around yourselves so that ignorance becomes your choice uh, so, I mean, yeah, I do write about it, but but it's, for me, it's it's just even even more than progressive, except for Palestine, because it's like, wait, feminism comes from a deep analysis, right? And how does that analysis then exclude Palestine? And it is even more surprising when we look at well. Actually, no, not surprising, <laughs> you know, because of Islamophobia. But it's like, you know, a white hegemonic feminism that absolutely totally supports, for example, uh, many of the Muslim women who are rising up against 
authoritarian Islamic fundamentalism, right? And absolutely, absolutely, yes. Malala Yousafzai, okay, uh, uh, Masa Amini, the Iranian revolution, all of that. And it's interesting that there's support for Muslim women rising up against state violence, state-sanctioned fundamentalist religious violence, except for Israel. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we have, again, ample, ample documentation of how Israel is a religiously uh, fundamentalist, oppressive state that oppresses not only Palestinian women, but also Jewish women, but more so with all of the added layers of oppression of settler colonialism and dispossession against Palestinian women. Yet when Palestinian women rise up against that state-sanctioned gendered violence, they become violent and terrorist. Right. So, right. And, and, you know, and in children's books, in high school history classes here in the U.S., you know, we uh, I, I remember seeing, you know, Golda Meir held up as like a great feminist icon of the 20th century. Um, <laughs> you know, just as like Hillary Clinton is held up as a great feminist icon. Um, yes. I mean, how, you know, and then uh, on the flip side of that, you also, or maybe not, it's the two sides of the same coin, but you also talk about how um, there's this like uh, sexualized, militarized um, way in which Jewish Israeli women are also viewed, you know, like the um, you talked about Maxim magazines, you know, hottest women of the Israeli military, the, you know, this like yeah. full, full spread. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? How the, how like, you know, Israeli women, especially Israeli soldier uh, soldiers who are women are also held up as like the, the pinnacle of feminism and beauty and, um, you know, just in this like completely deranged uh, analysis. How, how does this happen? I mean, I think the glorification of the military is so uncritical that anyone associated with the military becomes glorified. And, and I think that Israel does, of course, you and I are aware of Israel using absolutely any possible aspect of propaganda in order to, you know, uh, improve its tarnished image. And one of them was women in the military, right? And, uh, but, uh, you know, the that's funny. I mean, we have to actually come up with a term for that. We know about greenwashing, redwashing, and all of that. What, what would be the weapons watch, washing that <laughs> about, about women in the military? I'm going to have to come up with that term, or you can. I mean, You're right. <laughs> like the glorification, but it's also the uncritical glorification of the military, right? Because yeah. if you do not uncritically glorify the military, then you would not think that women in the military are some are an accomplishment of feminism. You know, like, how could they be? How could they be? But there's such a glorification of the military, uncritical, unquestioning here and in Israel, that that basically that anyone entering the military automatically becomes heroic and these women become heroic by entering an, a killer machine a killer institution the institution that actually is 
upholding to this day genocide and apartheid. But entering that glorified institution becomes unquestioning. I mean, speaking of the Israeli military, also, I mean, the most moral army, right? Okay. Right. I, I do write about, about greenwashing and how, like, you know, and, and pinkwashing in the military. I mean, the military, the Israeli military is just like this institution, as I said, that upholds apartheid and genocide and yet is viewed as moral. So, you know, like there's the, the idea that because before, before when, when the U.S., still had don't ask, don't tell, where you could be gay in the military, but you know, don't ask, don't tell, please don't be out <laughs> with your sexuality. In Israel, it actually, you, you could, you could tell, right? So, so there were, you know, like openly gay soldiers in the Israeli army. And that meant that the Israeli army is more open-minded, but it's okay. like, you know, does a gay soldier not kill? Right. Oh, right. I mean, oh, but also the greenwashing. I mean, for me, it's even more mind-boggling that Israel also prides itself on accommodating vegan soldiers. Right. Right. So they, they had have, a whole thing about that. Yeah. They they get yeah. vegan combat boots. Right. Yeah. Yes. Le not leather and not not woolen beret and not leather. They have hemp belts. You know. But there's still soldiers in the Israeli military, right? Yeah. And so, yes, and, and also women in the military. Does that change the, the military? It does not. It makes it more effective. And effective, as far as the army goes, is killer. Right. So whether you're gay or vegan or a woman or a gay woman vegan soldier you're still part of a killer machine yeah but yeah. again i mean the uncritical mind that views someone like hillary clinton as a feminist someone like golda Meir as a feminist would also see these women in the military as feminist right right <laughs> how do we how 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 do we uh, resist that? I mean, what are the mechanisms for, you know, changing a definition of what feminism should be and what it has become under imperialism and settler colonialism and apartheid and capitalism? I mean, it's all very ingrained in how the system operates. Um, how do we even begin to change that? I always quote Winona Leduc's statement, we don't want a bigger piece of the pie. We want a different pie altogether. We want different ingredients in the pie. Mm. There's some kind of feminism that simply wants a bigger piece of a pie that is toxic, where every ingredient is unhealthy, but I'll take a bigger piece, right? Right, representation, so, right? <laughs> Versus, no, this pie is not good. Can we bake something healthier? So the switch that you're talking about is basically, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton wants a bigger piece of that pie. Golda Meir got a bigger piece of that pie. Uh, is that the pie we want? Because we know what that pie is. 
That's all, you know, whatever your analysis, your anti-oppression analysis comes from, whether it's anti-capitalism, anti-militarism, anti-sexual violence, anti-colonialism and whatever, then you look at that pie and you go, that pie is corrupt. That pie is toxic. That pie is unhealthy. I don't want a bigger piece of that pie. Versus, okay, well then what? Uh, and so, and I think that, you know, how do we make that switch? I think a lot of us have already made that switch. Yeah. You know, the switch has been made. The switch, for, for many of us, we didn't have to make the switch. We didn't have to. I mean, I've never been a Hillary Clinton wannabe or a Golda Meir <laughs> wannabe, you know, it's yeah. like, we did, I didn't have to make the switch. And I think an understanding of different circumstances for many of us, when it's our lived experience, we don't have to make the switch. But there are women whose lived experience allows them to be a Hillary Clinton wannabe. And they're, they're the ones who have to make the switch. And they are making the switch. I mean, you know, I want to look at I do look at the ugly reality. I'm also looking at what is happening just underneath the ugly reality. And that switch is absolutely taking place. It's like, it's like you know, we're almost in spring. I don't, mm. Probably in California, it's already spring here. It's almost spring. <laughs> and it's like under the soil, there's so much going on, you know? And so I, I see, you know, that's, again, the global intifada, the greater than the sum of our parts, all of the coalitions happening, and they do include a lot of people. Yes, it's primarily the lived experience of disenfranchised communities, disenfranchised by any number of systemic oppression, but also it's it's like people are coming together. So some of us have never had to make the switch. Some of us have always known that the police were never meant to protect us. I mean, who do the police serve and protect? They do serve and protect some people, not me, right? right? So for some of us, we've never had to make the switch, but there are some people who are making the switch like, okay, yes, the police, hmm, all right, let me reconsider. Yeah. And and I think that we're we're getting that even so I, I no longer speak of white feminism. I speak of hegemonic feminism mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there are white feminists who are on board. So hegemonic feminism and hegemonic feminism does include, unfortunately, some women of color, right? Because, I mean, that's the assimilationist. That's the dominant discourse. What do we aspire to? We, as we aspire to be president of the United States, right? If we're uncritical. Right rather than understanding that president of the United States is president of the most imperialistic superpower in the world, you know? Uh, is that what anyone wants to be who's a feminist? Right, right. Um, and and, and you, you touched upon this, but I, I kind of want to bring it back. Um, you know, when, when you're speaking to uh, your students, for example, um, who are growing up in, in a, a different world than it was, you know, 20 years ago, where there is, I, I, I feel like there's more discussion, there's more um, understanding of the interconnectedness of all of these struggles from, you know, the, the global, you know, 
uh, climate crisis struggle to LGBTQ rights to um, you know to Palestine to uh, you know de decolonial movements across the world. How how do you talk about um, you know, what inspires you and what pulls you from the despair when you when you look at um, all of these struggles on so many fronts? Um, how do you talk to your students and, and this young generation about keeping these fights going and 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 um, not, you know, giving in to to the, just the weight of of how massive these fights really are? Oh, OK. I mean, I I I, I tend to bring in then a historical background at that, you know, one thing I do tell my students is it wouldn't be called a struggle if it was easy. Mm. I mean, we're in the struggle. Part of being in the struggle means we're struggling, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be called a struggle if it was easy. And then I, I, I give them examples of some struggles that have taken a very long time. You know, ending slavery in this country, even though from day one, Every enslaved African knew that it was wrong. Every enslaved African, it, it, you know, but, but it took centuries, literally centuries. What if they had given up? But was it even an option, right? right. And so I, I give examples of that, of like how struggles have not been easy. You know, countries that were colonized for centuries, think of India. Think of Algeria for for decades or centuries. It wouldn't be called a struggle if it was easy, and it does take decades or centuries. What is the alternative? Right. Right. So I think that's how I present it. Like, you know, we absolutely, yes, we're in the struggle. That's how we define struggle. Struggle is not easy, but is the alternative like really more police? Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Funding the police is the alternative. Yeah. Bigger jails are the alternative. I mean, like, is that we have to create the alternative? And I, you know, and I'm always saying, like, okay, so I may not have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers, but is it not better to look for answers than to settle for what we have? And I don't claim to have all the answers. And I think no abolitionist of anything, of the police, the military, Zionism, colonialism, has all the answers. But we're looking at a reality that is unsustainable. And so we're also, we're working on the solution as we also work on, we're looking at the answers as we look at the solution. You know, again, it's not a two-stage theory. There is no such thing as two-stage liberation. Liberation has to happen. And, and all of these conversations are taking place because, yes, Palestine will be free. And when Palestine is free, it's not going to be the, the PA that's free. <laughs> <laughs> Nada, Elia, thank you so much. Uh, again, the, the book is called Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, Feminism, Internationalism, and Palestine. 
Um, where can people go to get this wonderful book and um, learn more about your work? I think it's available everywhere. I mean, you can avail, it's available through the unnameable website, through Google <laughs> Press, my publisher, but also I do want to plug in Palestine Online Store. Palestine Online Store is a Palestinian owned small business, activist small business, and they carry my book. So Palestine Online Store, if you don't want to go through the unnameable big website <laughs> and also at independent bookstores of course yes. yes 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 nada elia thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us today on the electronic intifada podcast i thank you for having me thanks for watching this video please subscribe to our youtube channel hit like leave a comment these engagements help us with the youtube algorithm and it helps us to get around silicon valley censorship as much as possible it does make a difference you can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now thank you <laughs>